0: My name is John Stringfellow and you're listening to New Strangers here on 88.5. Hello, my name is John Stringfellow and you're listening to New Strangers here on 88.5 FM WCG Cougar Radio. Welcome back to the next episode. Uh, for this one we also have planned, as I mentioned before in a more chronological continuity. This next episode follows the 16th century. Uh, with the poet Edmund Spencer. As I mentioned before, he was a poet and an English poet during his lifetime over from the 1552 to 1599, wrote a lot of poetry that is now considered to be more or less the basis for a lot of our ideas in regards to stories in poetry, uh, narratives, if you will. One of his most famous poems uh, was a collection of cantos known as the Fairy Queen, in which case this series of cantos were meant to be more or less about the twelve virtues seen by the Catholic Church or by similar religions, and those virtues tend to follow things like courage, holiness along with chastity, friendship, justice, temperance, courtesy, just to name a few there. Now, within the Fairy Queen, uh, we see that Spencer uses something uh, of a different form for this, that form being his own inventive one. Within this poem, this series of cantos, he uses a very specific form which follows nine lines, and with each first eight lines follows an iambic pentameter, which we are familiar with with Shakespeare. And then the last line is an a, a iambic hexameter, uh, rhyming A, B, A, B, 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 C, B, B, E. And of course this form follows after each introductory statement that he makes, uh, this little small stanza uh, before every cantos, uh, as a way of introduction to the story that he's trying to portray. Uh, And in this one, in the first book, uh, which follows, if I'm not mistaken, the first book follows uh, Holiness. Uh, I will be reciting the first cantos along with the introductory stanza and analyze the contextual meaning behind it. Uh, having read the first cantos or at least the first uh, stanza, I found it really interesting uh, in terms of fantasy. I myself, as much as I love poetry, I also love science fiction and fantasy and one of the elements about fantasy that I love so much is sort of that medieval sort of style, that, that viewpoint of which uh, we know of the knights, the dragons, the maidens, seeing all those character archetypes come together to form a more or less legend. Uh, and for those who enjoy mythology, you may know of Joseph Campbell, who was a literary studier of mythology. Uh, in fact, he he boiled down mythology to very specific points in which follow similar themes in terms of who the heroes are, what kind of journeys they have to follow by, and the overall point or moral of the story that is being presented in that myth. Uh, with these cantos of the Fairy Queen, uh, originally Spencer wanted this to be a 12-book series of poetry. <laughs> Uh, which each book would follow the specific virtue that he wanted to be. Um, As I mentioned before, the first book follows holiness, the virtue of being holy. And during Spencer's lifetime, his original plan was to do all 12. However, uh, his life was too short, so he was only able to do six, and a rough seven had been published posthumously. I will now recite the poem or the first canto of the Fairy Queen within the first book by Edmund Spenser. Containing the legend of the Knight of the Red Cross or of Holiness. Number one Lo, I the man whose muse will homed in mask, as time her taught and lonely shepherd's weeds. Am now in, fros, in frost a far unfitter tasks, For trumpet's strewn to change mine oten reeds, And sing of knights and ladies' gentle deeds, Whose prayers, having slept in silence long, Me all too mean, the sacred muse a reeds, To blazon broad amongest her learned throng, Fierce warrens and faithful lovers shall moralize my song. So already we have a very sort of archaic way of writing. Uh, for example, the way that Spencer spells fairy in this is not our typical F-A-I-R-Y. It is spelled F-A-E-R-I-E. And queen here is not spelled Q-U-E-E-N. It's spelled E. And this is a fairly typical way of spelling during the 16th century. Uh, it's it's far more poetic, and, and of course it's an older form of English, uh, which was more or less one of the foundations of how our language evolved to today. We recognize similar older English in the works of Chaucer, and within the last episode, we recognize similar old English with Thomas Wyatt, who was a earlier 16th century poet. But for those who know of Shakespeare, or at least have taken a class that focuses on Shakespeare, uh, we, we recognize much of this older English and can more or less figure out a more modern equivalent for the most part. So with the first line, Lo, I the man whose muse Willem did make, or excuse me, Willem did mask. So already the speaker is calling to attention who he is, and where he is essentially in life and in this case this man who has presented himself says that his muse has left him essentially Uh, that his muse had at one point been connected with him at one point had been formally with him the translation of "willow" literally changes to the word "formally," as we know today. So lo, the man whose muse formally did mask, as time for taut and lonely shepherd's were weeds. So with this, we recognize that having the muse separated from the man, we see that. where he once was and where he goes to now. As time, her thoughts refers to perhaps the past in Lowly Shepherd's Weeds. Uh, we may recognize that as in in the past, his muse would come to him or had taught him of the shepherd's weeds, but he is now in Frosty, Far and Fitter text since the muse has left him. And of course, we recognize or muse or the muses uh, as being mediums for our creativity. Uh, for example, an artist may say that his muse is perhaps the moon, or his muse is a figure in which he's painting a portrait of. Uh, for, for creative writers uh, and for poets, our muse may be uh, a simple leaf blowing in the wind, or perhaps our muse is uh, a sort of emotion that's in the air that we sense, but we can't necessarily define pin down. So, in the older context of what a muse may be, uh, we know from mythology, we know from the Renaissance era, that the muse is recognized as a goddess. She was one of the nine daughters of Zeus, and she reigned over the creative arts, essentially. She was the guidance, the helper for a storyteller to share his story. Uh, For example, in the Odyssey, within the very beginning, uh, the speaker, who the narrator may very well be Homer, or another character that he uses uses as the speaker, uh, calls upon the muse to help him and guide him through the story so that he may present it and tell it well. And so in this case, our speaker has since lost his muse. His muse has left him and is no longer present with him. So he may feel at a loss for creativity's sake. Uh, He may not be as aware of what he's doing. He may not be able to write or create as well as he used to because he feels that his muse has left him. But what's also very interesting is the fact that he uses mask, uh, and of course the, the spelling of mask in this is M-A-S-K-E. So we know of a mask as being something that hides her face or obscures one's uh, view. So in, in this case, if he views his muse as a mask, what does that say necessarily about him internally? Who is this man and what and how does he think of himself well internally because if he uses his muse as a mask to the outside world then perhaps he's doing it because he's hiding something and well most people tend to hide because of fear so we have to ask ourselves is this man internally fearful of the outside world is he fearful for himself Uh, is he fearful for others around him Uh, is he hiding something because he's scared of what others think of him, or is he hiding it because he's scared of who he is? In, in a way, this is a sort of metaphor for hiding, perhaps, our fears of being judged. Perhaps this creative, whoever he is and whatever his occupation is, is afraid that people will find out that he isn't necessarily as talented or necessarily as good because his muse has left him, that his muse is more or less his excuse for why he's done so well up until this point. And because his muse has left, he has found himself in frost, a far unfitter task, for trumpets strewn to change my open wreaths. So perhaps in a way, since his muse has left him, he is left with older eyes. Uh, And by that, I mean that sometimes when we view the world and view society and have a perception of what life is to us, we sense a sense of clarity. But when our worlds are shook, Or shook it excuse me and when life appears to not make as much sense as we initially thought (laughs) uh, our ideas and how we understand and comprehend the world around us change and that can be very disturbing to many people the idea of change so suddenly and so drastically uh, can be worrisome And that isn't to say that change is a bad thing, there are many times that change has proven to be a wonderful thing, but for all those who may be unaware or unprepared, change can really turn their lives over for themselves. And so this I don't know necessarily if Spencer here is trying to make it that his speaker dislikes change, I'm not entirely sure of that. but. At least we know that the speaker is fully aware that change has occurred and that it is within his view the next line uh, that I previously just read for trumpets strewn to change my note and reads to me that, that <laughs> And perhaps this is a, too modern of a context, but for me, the idea of trumpets strewning, uh, it reminds me of, you know, loud music uh, and strewning being, you know, the displacement of something, the, the, the movement of something uh, that may necessar- not necessarily be wanted. So for trumpets to strewn, to change my own reeds, seems to me that yet again, the speaker here um, is experiencing change, but this isn't necessarily change that he's looking for, change that he immediately wants, uh, and it may be overwhelming for him to, to comprehend and understand and take in. And Oaten reads, ah, uh, Oaten, we understand perhaps we can make a connection between oats as in like oatmeal or grain, and reeds, we, we may know reeds as the plant life that grows around a river. So Oaten reads, what necessarily context is that? Perhaps this is a a more older, uh, more 16th century uh, sort of connection. Uh, Perhaps this is something that has been lost to time. We've stumbled upon it just now. (laughs) Uh, The next line, and sing of knights and ladies, gentle deeds, whose prayers haunting sleep in... Silence long. So we, we are aware that the man has lost his muse so far. Uh, that originally he was taught in the ways of shepherds' reeds by his muse. Uh, but now, since she's gone, he's left to unfitter tasks and finds that trumpets have changed his oaten reeds. So perhaps the own reeds may be metaphorical for a uh, moral. Uh, we know that plant life can be very. Uh, important to many people uh, not only as a food and as a resource but as a way of living uh, for people such as farmers and with the shepherd's weeds and the oaten reeds uh, I wonder perhaps that or speaker here has some sort of farming connotation uh, which would make sense being that it is the 16th century so it makes me wonder you know who would the muse be for a farmer? Uh, is it the rain? Is it the wind? Uh, is it perhaps a good season? Is it the sun, perhaps? Uh, or good seeds? Or good soil for the seeds? It, it could have many, many meanings and many interpretations. Uh, but it's it's very interesting to think that our speaker here is a farmer instead of an artist. And so here for, for trumpets strewn to change my own reeds and sing of knights and ladies gentle deeds, whose prayers have slept in silence long. So here we see that there has been a, a change, uh, again, this, this is another reference to the previous change the speaker was aware of, uh, and that he now sings of knights and ladies gentle deeds. Or perhaps what he's referring to is that the trumpets that strewn him are ones that sing of knights and ladies' gentle deeds. Uh, and here, gentle is, it's spelled the way that we know gentle to be, but it, the context of gentle here is not something that's soft or something that's uh, comfortable. It's something that is noble, uh, something that is strong and, and well respected. So, for the trumpets to be strewning our speaker here because they sing of knights and ladies' noble deeds, perhaps because his muse has left him, the farmer or the creative here uh, doesn't feel as if he's very noble. Uh, perhaps he's embarrassed or jealous, even. He also mentions the fact that these knights and ladies uh, Their prayers have slept in silence long So perhaps he is aware that knights and ladies During this time period uh, May not necessarily be Supercilious, if you understand what I mean Uh, They may not necessarily be higher than anyone else because they too, their prayers have slept in silence long and whose prayers haven't, <laughs> you know who, who's, uh, whose prayers to a higher being who, who is l- believed to be listening whose prayers haven't been answered or haven't slept in silence long and so I think that's what the speaker here is suggesting that he too finds that his prayers in the same way of lords and ladies, or knights and ladies, uh, to have to slept in silence long. So perhaps because his muse has left him, he's seeing the overall interconnection of humanity. Uh, that what was once previously thought that there was a separation uh, due to social class, uh, he sees now that. Everyone has the same common denominator here, that they're all human and that they all are trying to experience life, at least in the best ways that they can, uh, some more fortunate and some more prosperous than others, of course. Uh, within the next line, our speaker says, me, all to me, the sacred muse, a reeds. Uh, in this case, uh, when he refers to himself and says all too mean, what he really is trying to say is not that he's uh, angry, uh, but that he is low in status, uh, that being the old English connotation there. And so he, he recognizes that he himself is not of noble birth, that he is not a, a knight or lady, uh, that this man is in fact one of, uh, one of the poor, or one of uh, his... Of the lower, lower classes, which, again, in connotation to the idea that this guy is a farmer, uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, Farmers back then didn't make a whole lot. lot. Uh, Most of what they made would go towards the kingdom, and what little they had left was meant for themselves. Uh, And so it's hard life to live as a farmer. And so with him being all too low in status, the sacred muse are reeds. And so with the reeds, here it it could have the connotation of commands or instructs. Uh, His sacred muse here, uh, as mentioned before, is one of the daughters of Zeus. So it could be that because the muse here is known as a goddess, she may not favor everyone else, kind of, uh, kind of like luck, in a sense. Uh, not all of us can be lucky, and not all of us are meant to be lucky, necessarily. Uh, and for those who believe in luck, or for those who don't, uh, luck can fall in and out of favor for many. And so it could be that the muse has left him, or at least he feels that his muse has left him, because he is a man of lower status, Uh, because he's not as prosperous, because he's not as lucky to live as a knight or lady. Yet at the same time, he recognizes that knights and ladies, uh, those of higher social class, are just the same as him being human, uh, because they too, uh, his prayers go unanswered just as much as their prayers go unanswered. Uh, So he sees that there's obviously a connection here, and that the separation of classes doesn't necessarily make sense Due to because everybody's here everybody prays and everybody here is trying to experience religion or experience life as best as they can and so within the next slides the blazing broad amongst her lean throng fierce wars and faithful love shall moralize my song so the blazing Broad amongst her lean learned uh, So we know blazon, or the the more modern word I suppose is blaze, uh, as being a synonym for fire, uh, some sort of pyro activity going on. <laughs> uh, but in this case, blazon refers back to the trumpets, as previously mentioned. Uh, from here. To blazon means to proclaim uh, or announce by blowing a trumpet. Um, so we can imagine, you know, back in the medieval ages, or back at least in the Renaissance era, that when a nobleman was announced, uh, a series of trumpets would be played out. Or when a lady of noble birth was announced, that a series of trumpets would play to her entrance. And this is a fairly common thing that goes on within the higher classes, in, within the the inner kingdom of certain monarchs in certain countries and that which celebrate their own existence <laughs> or celebrate their own class by, you know, frivolous or very expensive uh, items. Uh, perhaps these trumpet players, minstrels, uh, certain... Aspects that, that define their higher class is, is what belongs to the higher class. For example, today we know people who belong to the higher class, you know, tend to drive a very nice car, they have beautiful houses, uh, they may even have an art collection. This is the same here. Uh, to own trumpet players to play for others when they come to enter. Uh, is another aspect that defines someone of being of high class in the sense. So, to blazon broad amongst her learned throng, fierce wars and faithful love shall moralize my song. So, a throng here is a a group of people, uh, a a sort of, not necessarily a crowd, uh, but also not necessarily a small group. Uh, I like to think of a throng as being Around, you know, 13 to 14 people, uh, much in the same way that I like to think of uh, The Hobbit or the Lord of the Rings, uh, in which the Fellowship of the Ring or the people of Durin uh, in The Hobbit are together a throng, uh, that they come together as equals and that they come together as looking for and aiming for the same goal, essentially. And so the speaker here talks of his muse, uh, perhaps his muse is being introduced to a new group of people, uh, perhaps these people of higher birth uh, in society, and that she is amongst them, and that uh, they are a learned throng. So, of course, you know, these people of noble birth uh, tend to have a better education. They tend to be able to know how to read and write and uh, observe literature, and observe music, and be aware of the certain subtleties of, of art. So it would make sense for the speaker to recognize the higher classes as being a learned throng, that they are educated, and that his muse has left him, one of lower class, maybe not as educated, to move on to the people who are up top. But within this last line, fierce wars and faithful love shall moralize my song. So that makes me think within this last line that as much as history likes to reflect people of noble birth, we, we, we tend to learn about kings and queens and uh, famous knights, both historical and fictitious uh, as much as we like to reflect on those who were seen as being the elites back then uh, because of war and because of faithful loves so says the speaker uh, that these items will moralize his song so he He's a commoner. He recognizes he's a commoner, yet he also recognizes that he, like everyone else, regardless of class, is human. And as much as those of nobility will be written down in the history textbooks and, and talked about in discussions, in the end, it's like as if our speaker here, or at least Spencer, tells us that his speaker will have the last laugh. Uh. not in in a way that's humorous but the last laugh in the sense that he will be the one who is truly remembered or he will be the one who is truly admired Uh, which makes a lot of sense you know history professors and and historians have been searching and learning and studying these famous kings and queens and noblemen for years and years and years Uh, generations spanning over god knows how long (laughs) uh but, you know, one of the things that I always hear about, or at least one of the things that I, I, I myself am interested in, is what of the common people? You know, I, I, I've, I feel like I've learned enough about, you know, King Edward or King Henry. And I, I would like to learn of the common foot soldier. I would like to learn of the common farmer during these times. What were their lives like? What sort of prospects did they have? Uh, What did they do for entertainment? Um, Because when you really look at it, no one can be a monarch unless they have a kingdom. Otherwise, you're just a king of one, you know? (laughs) You're a ruler of one, uh, a ruler of self. But that's not recognized as a kingdom back then. Uh, A kingdom is one who... Or, or excuse me, a kingdom is that of what makes over many people. It, it, it's, a, it's a collection of, of people that come together and decide and dictate upon choices within life. They either elect or someone elects themselves as leader, and therefore you have uh, uh, a form of government, a form of uh, monarchy perhaps. And so it seems to me that our speaker here, though his muse has left him, it appears as if though he knows it, he realizes who he is, what kind of person he is, what kind of class he belongs to, and that his muse will belong to those of the higher nobility, uh, that history will make sure to write down these famous people uh, for for. For hundreds and thousands of years to come. Uh, But... He realizes that he will be the one that people will truly seek after. The historians, the the creatives... They will be looking for... Common people like him. Because their history will not be known. Uh, Their history will go undocumented. Um, They will become... One of, a, of an infinite, invisible, common people. Um, and people will be searching out for them in the end because they will want to know, well, how did the kingdom become this way? Uh, how did this kingdom grow? Well, it grew and was built off of the, the hardworking lower classes. Uh, food was made by these, by these people. Uh, buildings were made by these people societies were made by these people and so it appears to me as if this this first cantos or this first uh, stanza within this first cantos of the first book is more or less an announcement of the speaker saying in the end I will be the one who sought after and I will be the one who's truly remembered even though life may not remember remember me or recognize me right now in this lifetime. And so that's a really interesting prediction, more or less, a a hypothesis of our speaker and of Edmund Spencer to make, especially during the 16th century. And I think this is, again, much like our last episode, another example of of the common people, the everyday folk, um, of society and what it was like back then and how it's still kind of similar to what our society is now Uh, i myself found this poem very enjoyable Um, and of course as i mentioned before this 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 is only one small poem uh, of many this is just a small stanza uh, in a series of, of cantos uh, over several books that follow these virtues and I feel that each cantos or at least each stanza uh, focuses on a different aspect and sense of holiness uh, or at least with each virtue uh, that is the theme of this uh, Edmund Spencer himself wanted this to be a epic romance or uh, sort of story along the same lines of the canterbury tales or beowulf this was supposed to be something that was meant to be taught and meant to be learned uh and was supposed to examine each virtue and each aspect inside of these virtues and recognizing that this first book and, and this first stanza of this first contos uh being that the theme is of holiness it makes that that poem even more interesting on what Edmund Spencer was intending to design more or less when he thought of holiness why was it that the first thing that he wanted to introduce holiness as was within this poem and that's something that I'll leave you all, the listeners, to discover and find out for yourselves. I highly encourage those who are interested to look into The Fairy Queen by Edmund Spencer. Uh, For those who want to learn more of the 16th century uh, sort of writing style, uh, Edmund's own form of writing, highly, highly intriguing and historically fascinating for any history books who are listening. Uh, Again, our next episode, I hope to at least read one more poem of the 16th century, or it might just move on to the 17th century. Uh, I haven't quite dismissed it yet, but however, this project so far to me, even though it's in its very stages of beginning, uh, I found it already so enjoyable, and I'm thoroughly looking forward to how far we can progress and get through these uh, poets and these forms of poetry throughout the rest of the semester. Thank you for listening, uh, and I hope you all are having a great day. Thank you to Columbus State's Comm Department for the space and equipment provided for this show. Thank you to Dr. Gibson, the department chair. Thank you to Dr. Goetz, WCUG's faculty advisor. Uh, you can listen to this show on 88.5 FM Cougar Radio, Tune in or SoundCloud. Thank you for listening.